Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Every relationship you have, people should think that you're fair and hardworking and have their best interests at heart. So, uh, but really try to find joy and passion. Uh, uh, And don't be discouraged uh, day to day. Uh, Look forward to waking up uh, and making your contribution to the world. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So excited about this week's episode, part two, with Ben Feingold. You're going to love it. If you didn't listen to the first part, please do so. This guy will blow you away. Truly an incredible man with a career that spanned many, many decades. And I wish you guys a great 2020. I know it's early, but I really hope that you have a great, great year. I want to thank you so much for your support. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. And I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And before I get started, I just want to let you know that we recorded these episodes at a conference room at Ben's offices. And the acoustics weren't great, but if you can get past it, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to be inspired. And it's truly very, very impactful. And when I think about Ben Feingold, I think of a guy who was at the forefront of so many different forks in the road in the entertainment business. And he led his companies in a way that took them in the right direction with decisions that helped shape not just his company, not just our country, but the world in terms of entertainment. And I'm talking about from beta and video to DVD and Blu-ray, all the way into digital entertainment. This is a guy whose business circle included heavyweights like Peter Goober, Alan Levine, John Feltheimer, Alan Horn, Mark Waddles, Doug McMillan, Reed Hastings, 
Barry Meyer, John Singleton, and Steve Jobs. It's incredible the amount of people that he's impacted throughout so many different companies, from Castle Rock to Lionsgate to Paramount to Blockbuster to Hollywood Video to Walmart and to iTunes. But not only that, he worked his way up through the ranks in each capacity to become a guy who made bold decisions that shaped the entertainment world. And I just think of that decade after decade after decade still making a difference like he is at Samuel Goldwyn Films, one of the most historic companies in the world. And this guy comes in and the growth under his leadership due to his deal-making expertise is unprecedented. Every time this guy comes to a company, things improve, things get better, companies make more money, and decisions are made that change the face of entertainment. And if you can figure out a way to do that in whatever area of the business you're in, and then create a circle of friends that even if they leave and go to different companies or are already at different companies who become the tops of their field and you align yourself with those people throughout your journey in the business, I can guarantee you, you're going to have the possibility of the kind of career that Ben Feingold has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right, I want to go way, way back. Yeah. I want you to take me back to where you grew up. Mm-hmm. What was the economic dynamic of the family? And what was your first inspiration of getting into this crazy business? Uh, I was uh, born in Philadelphia. Uh, I was, uh, my family lived in southern New Jersey, uh, uh, my father was a, a World War II veteran, uh, went to college and law school in the GI Bill, and uh, became, uh, became a, a judge. We were not poor. Uh, we were middle class, upper middle class family, and uh, certainly not wealthy. And, uh, uh, but the, the value of education and hard work uh, was... Uh, uh, instilled in my family. So my father would wake me up on a weekend on eight o'clock. It's too late already. You should get up. Uh, it was not like sleeping till 12, like millennials can today or, or, or kids. So hard work was important. Um, I went to college and then I went to graduate school, uh, at London school of economics. Went to Brandeis, right? I went to Brandeis, which was socially liberal as I am, uh, active, intellectually stimulating place. I then went to London School of Economics for a master's, which I got in a year, and then I went to law school at University of California at Hastings in San Francisco. 
but the funny thing is, even though I was in California and my best friend lived in LA and uh, I had no interest in entertainment. I moved to New York and became a corporate lawyer at a very large firm on Park Avenue. I liked business. I didn't really want to uh, be like Al Pacino uh, and in Just, uh, Justice for All, which was one of the movies ahead of Columbia. Uh, what I liked, were you doing at the law firm? I was a corporate lawyer. I was doing mergers and acquisitions. For uh, film companies no, or regular companies? Uh, regular companies, uh, <clears throat> oil companies. Uh, it was a, this was a K. Scholler. K. Scholler. Pyramid Hayes and Handler. Yeah. We had Texaco, uh, Sprint, GTE, New York Life, uh, uh, ANR, it was Olympia New York. We had very large uh, accounts. One of my first deals I did was in 1984. I actually was the lawyer who did the contract to sell ESPN to uh, Cap Cities ABC. Uh, I got a call from a partner and said we have to do this deal overnight. Uh, we have two overnight. Overnight. Why overnight? How many uh, deals are made overnight? When a company decides they have to sell something to make a financial result for a quarter, it needs to be closed by a certain date for them to book the revenue. And uh, our client was Sprint. Uh, and Sprint at the time, ESPN was started by Southern Pacific and they had put satellites up to regulate the trains. They had bandwidth, so they decided they would actually use the bandwidth to create a service. It's brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. The company had about $12 million of revenue and people, uh, Cap Cities was a guy named uh, Bob Murphy, I think was his name, who was the chairman may not have been Bob. He was brilliant enough. They had a dead ABC network, but he wanted to be in the cable business. I thought Bob Iger was the guy. No, it was Murphy. I forget his name. Okay. Uh, so he was young. He was very young in the company at the time. Uh, uh, so they had uh, ABC network and O&Os, and they wanted to be in the cable business. Cable was just growing in the, in, in the mid early to mid-80s. And the O&Os are the owner-operated yeah. stations yeah. across the country. So we had two buyers, Ted Turner, who wanted, who had launched uh, CNN, and the other was Cap Cities. And uh, there was an auction going on. In the end, uh, Cap Cities won. And uh, I remember we sold the company for about $250 million, and it had about $12 million of revenue. People say they overpaid, but it turned out to be the best, uh, probably the best investment that Disney ever made uh, in the sense that ESPN is now uh, an enormously valuable part of the Disney empire. Uh, and they never moved the operation from Stanford, Connecticut, uh, where Sprint was at the time. I still believe they're based in, in Bristol. But yeah. Fantastic. You got great stories. Yeah. So you're a corporate lawyer and you're doing your thing, you're making money. As you're graduating college, do you ever have a worry that I'm not going to be able to make a living? I, I, I was not, uh, I've never been or didn't, I wasn't motivated by fear or 
to make money. It was about what would be interesting. I was never really worried about uh, how my life would be. I mean, my father was a great example in that uh, he never uh, worked harder than he wanted to, or didn't. He did the things. You know, he was in the war, and uh, I didn't think he was. He never really set a goal to make a lot of money. He set a goal to have enjoy his profession and to be a, a member of a community. And so I wasn't really motivated, like, how do I become successful? It was, is this interesting? I moved to New York out of law school because I thought uh, I would probably meet more fascinating people. Uh, uh, and have a choice to do something else if I started in New York, even though I was not from the city, than if I had gone to Philadelphia, where close to where my parents were, or if I stayed in San Francisco. So take us through the next transition from the law firm. You're doing really well. You're working on big mergers. You're a part of something that's probably the most groundbreaking merger in entertainment, or at least one of the top ten. Why do you decide that law isn't for me anymore, and what takes you to the next job? Uh, it was, uh, at the time, I wanted to go into, uh, maybe move over into banking. Uh, my father got sick, and so I decided not to leave. He, he was diagnosed with cancer, so I decided I had a stable job. I wanted to spend time with him. Uh, he died, and then uh, I got a call from a headhunter. Uh, looking for, they were looking for number two lawyer at Columbia Pictures. Uh, and they got my name. Uh, and uh, they asked if I would interview. And I said, honestly, I hadn't thought about it, but uh, let me think about it and call me next week. And they did. And I said, I'm happy to interview for that job. All right. So now at that stage in your career, Technically speaking, you hadn't really had experience interviewing, going in, walking in with your suit and your tie and sitting down and and knowing what it took to convince strangers that you're the person that they should align with and hire and pay a salary to. How did you prepare yourself for this interview that was going to change your life? And what instinctually did you do in the meeting that changed things to where when the door closed, they said, we have to hire that guy? Um, it's a good question. I'm trying to recall the time. Uh, I think... Uh, things. First, the people who were interviewing me already knew about me uh, because uh, when the headhunter called, they had already had me on a short list, principally because the people who were running the company had two other uh, uh, friends who were running big companies who I was the lawyer on. So they said, who's a smart young guy who will work like an animal, is free to travel, uh, that we can bring in to help 
you know, restructure Columbia Pictures at the time. When they say free to travel, I imagine they mean unmarried. Unmarried, could fly to New York, could go to London, negotiate anything, and they could basically, I would hire me to be in the Marines for them and to be a Marine Sergeant. Got it. So you go and you interview. Do you remember anything special about the interview that you did to convince them that you were the guy, besides what they already knew? Uh, I can't recall. I mean, honestly, I can't recall I did anything uh, unique or brilliant uh, other than I was myself direct. Uh, and uh, uh, they asked me lots of strange questions. But I can't think of anything. Was the offer more or less than your current job? So I, I think they were paying me uh, probably 50% more than uh, uh, I was being paid. And they were offering me stock options in Columbia Pictures Entertainment at the time. But I had turned down jobs. I turned down one job where they offered me three times my salary six months earlier. Why'd you do that? Uh, because the company that made me the offer, uh, I was not comfortable with their business practices. Uh, and in the end, uh, I was right because uh, they ended up going to jail. And I had a sixth sense. It was Charles Keating, Lincoln Savings. And I had done some work when they were a home builder. And uh, at the time, they offered me like three times my salary to move to Phoenix uh, to be uh, assistant general counsel. And uh, I, I, I turned it down. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So you take the job, was it in New York? In New York. We were at 711 Fifth Avenue in the Coca-Cola building, which I believe still is the Coca-Cola building. And tell me your immediate impact on the company and how you made the transition to move up the ladder when others who were there before you mm -hmm. didn't move up the ladder. Tell us what you did. I was, yeah, it's a very good question. I was a different type of hire than they had because at the time, most people who were, who were uh, lawyers for entertainment companies were entertainment lawyers. So they were used to being talent lawyers, uh, but not corporate lawyers. So uh, the immediate impact I had is they said, we're gonna, we're gonna 
we're going to buy theater chains. We want you to go on the road with these people, and we're going to roll up all these theater chains into Lowe's, Lowe's Cinemas. So I went from market to market uh, with a business person, an MBA, and we acquired a chain of 50 theaters and then a chain of 80 theaters. Uh, uh, because they, they believed, uh, the management at the time believed that uh, cinemas, cinemas were going to be a growth business. They were making movies at Columbia Pictures, but they didn't have their own exhibition chain. So I was uh, doing that. Uh, one of the things that I was different at the time is I understood banking, uh, credit lending, uh, and investing. And so there were a lot of production companies springing up. There was Castle Rock, there was Jerry Weintraub. Uh, there was New Line Cinema. All these companies were independently owned but affiliated and they needed help to raise money. And so we had relationships with a number of these companies. And I mean, the chairman of the company at the time uh, said, go on the road, get them money. We don't have money to give them, but we can use our name and uh, our credit to help get them money. And so that's one of the things that I did which was different than if I was an entertainment lawyer who could negotiate, let's say, uh, a back-end participation or a first-dollar gross deal. I was looking at like working with companies like uh, Bank of America or Credit Lyonnais and a at the time, which is a big lender, uh, uh, to help companies uh, raise money. Uh, we raised money for Castle Rock, I remember, with Credit Lyonnais and did a deal with Westinghouse Credit. Um, and there were just a number of these deals at the time. So tell our audience the next step. How do you move now into the top tier of the company in terms of entertainment? Uh, so after Sony bought the company, uh, uh, they had new management in L.A. They hired Peter Goober and John Peters. It was a kind of a rock and roll time. Uh, everybody in New York was either let go or asked to move west. And I was asked to move west. And I said, I'd like to, I, I like being a lawyer, but I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. And I said, how about I establish the first corporate development department at um, Columbia Pictures Entertainment? And they said, great idea. Uh, they were film people. They were not uh, people who, uh, uh, you know, Peter Goober and John Peters had just made the first Batman at the time. Alan Levine was their lawyer, was the COO. They're like, we want a guy from New York. This is good. You can do corporate development for us. So I started the corporate development department at Sony, and we started looking into channels. Uh, and so uh, I work with the divisions to try to set up, broaden the distribution. So it was just about making good movies because we would say to the Japanese owners, uh, we need to broaden the uh, enterprise. Just making good movies is not going to guarantee success. We'd like to have places to put the movies on. Channel. Uh, uh, we'd like to get into expand internationally. So that's what I did. Uh, I raised money for movies, uh, for people. We, we started the game show channel. We started partnerships with HBO to launch HBO overseas. Uh, uh, we started indie, uh, channels in India. 
and uh, all which was to strengthen the company. And for me, it was intellectually interesting. You know, we launched a music channel in Germany, the first foreign language music channel. Uh, so how do you move to get the gig as president? Like, uh, how does something like that happen from a guy who comes in at one of the, and I'm not saying it was a low level, but you're in the law department of the company. You're not even in the sausage factory. You're kind of in the freezer section. How do you break out of that role? I see the transition here, what you're talking about with what you just said, but how do you get to pass everybody at the company and become the president? How does that happen? Uh, you, you get a little lucky. Uh, people think that you're smart. Uh, uh, you have good mentors, and uh, in my case, there was a, uh, a guy who came over to Sony named Mel Harris, who was at Paramount, who started the... V Mel was one of the founders of the video business uh, and ran Paramount Television for many years. He came over to Sony, and he was not happy with the video operation, how it was being run. And he came into my office one day and said, well, I have a new job for you. Uh, and he said, Alan and Peter signed off. That were the, his bosses. So what's that? He said, well, you're gonna run home video. Uh, and I said, I'm, 30, I'm 38 years old. It's a, it's a $700 million division. <clears throat> you're asking me to run home video. He said, yeah. And I said, but I like what I'm doing. I'm building all these channels around the world. Uh, we're looking at sports teams. We're looking at the Lakers at the time. I said, you know, I like what I'm doing. He said, we're not asking you. We're telling you. I said, so you're telling me I'm going to be running home video. And uh, they said, yes. I said, okay. I said, but I don't know anything about it the nuts and bolts of home video. They said, you'll learn. And uh, so uh, they trusted me to figure it out. And they also said, but since Mel had been running home video at Paramount, it was very experienced and highly intelligent. And he said, if you ever have an issue, just call me. Uh, so, uh, but I had also done an analysis of the division for them, and I had identified that they were not positioned at the time in the growth areas of the business, which was sell-through video versus rental video. And so, and then because we were gonna launch DVD, ultimately, it was a good choice for them. Uh, so, uh, you'd have to ask other people, but I think it's just, they wanted fresh eyes and a fresh perspective on uh, a very important division of the company. And uh, and the rest is, you know, what happened. One, two, Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation means to hear about these people and your relationship with them and where they've been in the world. Jeff Bezos. Okay, uh, that's a blast from the past. So Jeff Bezos, I met twice. Uh, 
in the uh, mid 90s. Uh, and Jeff Bezos, believe it or not, was involved uh, just before we launched uh, DVD. Amazon uh, went public um, and uh, had been selling VHS tapes because you could sell anything on Amazon. And when we were launching DVD, my first call was the Blockbuster, and they said no. Uh, my second call was to Best Buy because they were a big Sony client, and they said, yes, we will support the format. But I didn't think it was enough. So uh, our next call was to Amazon, saying, since you're already selling VHS, would you sell DVD? And they said, we're, we're, we're there. Uh, we can sell the hardware and we can sell the movies. So, and he said, by the way, we're coming down to LA and we'd like to uh, spend time with you. So we did. And, uh, and Amazon was a launch partner for the launch of DVD back in, I think it was 96, 97. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. John Kelly and Amy Pascal from Sony. So uh, John uh, was chairman of Sony uh, uh, for about five years and uh, Amy uh, was a junior executive at Columbia Pictures when I first started and moved out to California. She then left to go to Turner and then she came back with John. So John hired Amy. I had been at the company all throughout this period of time and John hired Amy to be his uh, creative muse uh, when John became chairman. And so uh, I had a good relationship with both. John was uh, uh, a velvet glove. He was quite tough in the exterior. In the uh, in reality, uh, his presentation was uh, fairly demure, but he's quite a tough man. And he was he he was intelligent and he respected making money. Um, uh, and uh, if you don't mind, just. Talk about your relationship with them in relation to the launch of Spider-Man. So, uh, Spider-Man, uh, the interesting thing about Spider-Man is uh, 
Sony Home Video, Columbia TriStar Home Video, which I was the, the uh, president of, had a deal with Menachem Golem, who got the rights to make... Tell our audience about Menachem Golem. So Menachem Golem was, was a famous producer of B action movies. Uh, he was an Israeli. He had made a deal with Marvel to make direct-to-video movies based upon Marvel IP. And we had the worldwide video rights to these movies. And Paramount, who was World Vision, which was owned by Paramount, had the worldwide TV. So, uh, and Marvel was teetering on bankruptcy at the time. So what happened, and it was actually, I think, I don't even know, I don't think Amy was even, she may not even have been at the company or she just came and John was not at the company. So we acquired the rights to Spider-Man. Uh, we made a deal with <clears throat> Paramount to take their rights away and then we paid money to Marvel for the franchise. Uh, the reason Sony had leverage is because we had the rights from home video to make direct-to-video home video. So it's, 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 it's quite absurd, but that's the reality. Uh, and then Amy uh, creatively managed uh, uh, picking uh, Laura Ziskin and Sam Raimi to shepherd the franchise. Uh, and the movie... Uh, uh, became uh, a big event even before it was released because it went so over budget. Uh, I even remember having to write a memo to Japan to explain the over budget because at the time I was uh, the business partner at the studio. I was uh, the head of business at Columbia Pictures. John and John brought me over for a couple of years. How far over budget did it go? So we were uh, we were over budget on Spider Man and uh, another large movie called Men in Black, and uh, and people were concerned, and so I had to write. A John asked me to write a memo to Tokyo uh, about the over budget situation, and even though I had nothing to do with the over budget and in the company I was known as uh, very fiscally uh, tough versus uh, creative people so I, I wrote the memo to Japan and I actually wrote a memo and said spending more money to finish a movie when you know it's a good movie is probably the best money you'll ever spend and in the case of these two movies it was uh, Spider-Man and Men in Black 2. I said, it's probably the best money that we we could spend, which is my way of rationalizing going over budget because we had gone over the limit of our authorization to make the movie. So we needed approval in theory. Uh, so I sent this memo, I think 10 days before the release. Uh, and it, it proved to be true. It, no credit to me, credit to uh, Sam Raimi and uh, Laura Ziskin and Amy and uh, the actors for making a great movie. Uh, the first, 
But I wrote the memo to Japan, and uh, it turned out to be true. The movie we were, I think, hoping would do 45 or 50 million opening weekend, did like 110 or 120. It was the first time uh, a movie did that type of box office uh, ever uh, and became the model for what has become an incredible Marvel business uh, over the years, whether the movies went through Sony, Paramount, Fox, or now uh, Walt Disney Corporation. The launch of PlayStation and PlayStation 2. Yeah. So uh, for the launch of PlayStation, uh, Sony uh, did not have a video game division. Uh, they experimented, they created a software division called Sony. Um, I forget the name of it. It did not work. Uh, there was a precursor, small one. Uh, so, so then Sony decided they wanted to go in the video game business to compete with Nintendo. Nintendo was the only one in the business. Uh, and they were going to use uh, the uh, DVD architecture infrastructure, in other words, the, to make a disc-based game system with random access. So, and I was running home video, so at the time people from Japan said, hey, uh, we're gonna launch this PlayStation. Uh, we don't have Salesforce for it, to sell the machines or to sell the software. Could you help? I said, of course. We're owned by one company. And so for a period of, um, uh, Six months in the U.S. and then a year overseas, all the hardware and the software we sold on behalf of Sony until they got big enough to set up their own operation. And then uh, my colleague who ran international home video at the time who uh, worked with me, uh, they, they asked me, they said, could Chris go and run PlayStation? I said, of course. So he ended up becoming the first He's, instead of being president of International Home Video, uh, he became then president of PlayStation, and he uh, launched that. Um, PlayStation 2 um, uh, was uh, fascinating uh, because PlayStation was a huge hit, so much that Microsoft decided to launch a platform called Xbox. So Sony had to come out with a new format. Like you said, why Blu-ray, why... Uh, why have Blu-ray when you have DVD? And the question is, why have PlayStation 2 when you have PlayStation 1? And the answer is to sell your software again and also to give a better experience to the consumer. Um, so uh, uh, it was really the, the architect was Ken Kutaragi, who is a very brilliant engineer, worked for Sony in Japan. And, uh, but we asked him, that the machine would play back movies uh, because that would give us even a bigger install base and he agreed so PlayStation 2 was the first uh, game platform to play back movies uh, so I was involved uh, in that and also the development of the controller that actually was a movie playback controller because at the time I said to Ken the game controller, it's beautiful for games, but if movie people have it, they won't know what button to touch. 
So I convinced him to actually make a remote look like a remote that you would have in your house, which was a big win. Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos at so, Netflix. So uh, Reed, uh, uh, I met after Netflix launched. Ted, I knew, Ted was a, uh, he worked for a wholesaler for home video called, I, I believe it was Sight and Sound. And he was just a buyer at the time. And he went to become the buyer at Netflix for the studios. And so Reed came around and we were, and we started selling DVDs to Reed. Uh, and so interesting uh, story is, um, uh, I made together with maybe Warner the first output deals with Netflix. They never had a contract with a studio. They would have to go to the wholesalers to buy discs. And so Netflix was short of money. And it's like the year 2000. And uh, so they were raising money from venture capitalists at the time. And so he said, what about an output deal? I said, it's fine, we, we'll figure it out. It'll improve your cash flow by like six months. So we did the first deal. For me, Netflix was helpful because I was handling Sony Classics movies and people wouldn't rent them at a Blockbuster, but on a national hub, it was a good place to get it. So we made the first deal and uh, we, because I was a big supplier, we were friendly. And uh, at one point we were discussing Sony buying 20% of Netflix because even good companies are short cash at times, and at the time they were short. And in the end, uh, the deal to buy 20% was not approved by Sony, even though I thought it was a good idea. And Ted uh, was the content guy of buying the movies from us over the years. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, uh, my first uh, recollection of Steve Jobs is when I got a my assistant called me and said, Steve Jobs is on the line. So he actually called me. Uh, at the time, he, after, after the successful launch of iTunes movies, excuse me, iTunes music, he wanted to do movies. So he called and said, Jobs here, I need your movies. And I said, love to get together with you. Let me talk to the people at Sony, higher ups. And so I did. And uh, we talked for a while and then I went up to see him. Uh, and we discussed the launch of movies, the pricing, the model. Uh, and uh, I remember saying to him, uh, we need your support for Blu-ray. And he said, you're not going to get it because I don't like the format. Uh, and it's too thick. We're making thin, thin computers, not computers that need a hard drive, a big drive. So he didn't want to support it. And uh, then he said he wanted to only sell movies. I said, you have to rent them. Uh, so, and then he showed me the prototype for the iPhone before the launch of the iPhone. And, uh, uh, he showed me the design and I said, you know, it's interesting cause it looks like, um, I said, I have a thing called, uh, a creative Zen. That was where there was a lawsuit or something. Yeah. So at the time I said to him, I like what you design, but I think the creative Zen is better. I said this in a meeting with Steve Jobs and he said, nah. I don't think it's any good. I said, I think it's pretty good, but they're based in Singapore, so I don't think you have to worry about the competition for the iPod at the time. So I had that meeting with him. And then he says, well, 
my this is going to what it's going to look like, and it's going to play back the internet. So I said to them, I like my BlackBerry. I can't think anybody would ever want to go on the internet on a phone. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I could not under I I I mean I was so wrong. Uh, I could never expect that anybody would want to do what they do on the internet on a phone. Shows you how visionary I am. But a year later, I see, I read in a newspaper that Apple settles a lawsuit with Creative Zen where they paid them hundreds of millions of dollars for all the patent patents that they had either stolen or copied. I don't believe it was because I suggested it. I think they had already been doing it. The Seinfeld deal. Yeah. So Seinfeld is really, uh, I was fortunate, fortunate enough in the beginning of my career moving out to L.A. to work with Castle Rock at the time. And uh, That was Glenn Padnick yeah, was the president. Yeah, Glenn was pa a president of television. Alan Horn was the president. And uh, Rob Reiner was a partner. And every year they were making TV shows and everything failed except Seinfeld. And Seinfeld uh, actually was thrown off the air twice by NBC. And it was only the third time that it stuck. And uh, in like 1990, uh, I think it was 95, Castle Rock at the time did not have enough money to continue. And uh, Sony was not in great shape either, Sony Pictures. So uh, 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 I was told to work with Castle Rock to sell the company, for which we owned 45%. And uh, I, I begged the head of TV, just give me a number for the future of TV for Seinfeld at the time, a big number so I could borrow the money to keep them alive. And he wouldn't give me the number. I said I can borrow the money, and so uh, we were we were required to sell the company. So Ted Turner, uh, uh, within a period of a month, bought New Line Cinema and Castle Rock. But in negotiating the deal, uh, we uh, insisted that Columbia and Sony, even though we were selling the company, we would be retaining our ownership position in Seinfeld. And at one point. Uh, uh, the Turner Broadcasting people said we're going to blow the deal, and we said we're insistent, and then they agreed. So to this day, uh, Sony is still distributing Castle Rock and Seinfeld, even though they sold the company about 25 years ago. Uh, and it was just sold to Netflix, uh, a future streaming license for $500 million for a few years. Your proudest moment in show business? Uh, uh, I think um, my proudest moment, I think, was uh, when I left uh, Sony, uh, many people came up to me and said that I made a big difference in their lives. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Um, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I had many disappointments over the years. Uh, uh, 
I think probably my biggest was when I left Sony, it was, uh, I was at the time not uh, in the good graces of uh, uh, the chairman, uh, not not the chairman of Japan. He, li- he liked me, he, they liked me very much, but uh, it was Howard Stringer and uh, Michael Lenton. They had made a deal to do a leverage buyout of MGM. Uh, and uh, going into that, I told them it's a big risk because the DVD catalog market was declining. And uh, if they did the deal, the the company would end up in bankruptcy. It turned out to be true. Uh, But at the time, I was a casualty of politics. The state of the industry for film, music, podcast, and where the economics lie in the future. So in the case of uh, the economics in the music business, uh, lie in live performance, endorsements, and celebrity status in the music business. There's no meaningful uh, revenue from transactional. And uh, the, the model for Spotify and Apple Music is a numerator denominator model of uh, how much am I in the numerator and how much is in the denominator. So ultimately, uh, streaming revenue uh, has a, a limit unless they can take the price of the subscriptions up, which they're not inclined to do. So music, it's clear for now. Uh, uh, for the movie business, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a tough model. I don't see, the issue is what's a movie and what's a TV show? So I can't answer that question right now. Uh, uh, the economics are perilous. Uh, we're having, uh, uh, we have a model. Uh, so the way the internet is working today, it's there's a lot of parallel plays playing inside of niches. So now there's people who like this type of movie, consume this type of movie, and people who like that kind of movie consume that. So it used to be, from a studio perspective, you would make a four-quadrant movie, which means a movie for everyone, 8 to 80. So the future of the movie business is not movies for 8 to 80. It's for one quadrant. So in other words, LGBT or Christian or urban. So what we do here at my small company, which... uh, uh, is we target audiences that have a a desire for certain things. A four quadrant movie was like Jerry Maguire, you know, movie star, a movie star, comedy, broad. Uh, The future is not that type of movie anymore, but it's to target a a specific genre. Um, Last question. Yeah. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town somewhere in the United States or the world and sort of has a dollar and a dream and not really know which direction they're going to go in, but somehow figures out a way to go to college, navigate, and have the kind of career that you have? So uh, be intellectually hungry and try to find joy every day. It's the most important thing. Uh, Try new things. Always. I mean, 
every relationship you have, pe people should think that you're fair and hardworking and have their best interests at heart. So, uh, but you really try to find joy and passion. Uh, uh, and don't be discouraged uh, day to day. Uh, look forward to waking up uh, and making your contribution to the world. Ben Feingold, Mishbuka. Okay. Thank you so much. And Amazing. Th I really appreciate it. Very, very inspiring and informative. Uh, thank you. It's been my privilege to be uh, uh, involved with people and to uh, uh, and to, and to live a passionate life. Well, it's working. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on FAMADI, October 24th, 2019. Heading reads industry standard, five stars. Comment reads, very informative and insightful for upcoming artists. Every episode leaves you with new gems about the industry. Thank you so much, FAMADI. You are a winner. I just want to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you. For any item you choose, you can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to BarryCats.com, to the store, check it out. I know you won't be disappointed. And have a great, great holiday season. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out, and we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? IKillJFK.com. Check it out. And here's a preview of the next episode. Matt Williams. Honestly, ask yourself, what do I believe in? What's my worldview? 
Uh, why am I telling this story? What's the, what is the intent behind my storytelling? And whether it's a one act play or a half hour sitcom or a two hour movie or a three hour Broadway musical, why are we telling this story? What do we want this story to do? That to me, if you can define that for yourself as a writer, as a show creator, as a storyteller, then, then that'll drive you as it has for me 30 plus years. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.